my name is Radhika Kulkarni. I'm one of the third years. Um, welcome to the Summer Survival Series. Um, I hope intern year is going well for you guys. I know I can't, I literally can't see anyone right now, but um, hopefully things are going smooth. Um, I know the last couple of lectures of um, your summer survival have been in cardiology, um, probably stellar performances by aspiring cardiologists. Um, I unfortunately am not applying for cardiology, so this lecture is not intended to be a super electrophysiological, you know, pacemakers, anything like that. Um, this lecture is just supposed to be, uh, you know, our basic approach to bradycardia, and I'm not even going to be concentrating too much on, you know, just um, all the EKGs and everything. It's it's more about it's more focused on you guys and what I want you guys to learn out of this. It's basically um, what you're expected to know um, in your first, you know, probably six months of training. Um, and then even as you go on to become a resident, um, just, you know, things to know, like when to really escalate care, um, when to get like um, cardiology involved. Um, so those are the things that I really want this lecture to focus on. Um, and hopefully it's not going to be super boring because I know this is like prime snooze time for a lot of people. Um, so we'll try to get through it as quick as possible. So approach to bradycardia. Um, so let's go through the learning objectives real quick. So as I already mentioned, um, just practical management of bradycardia. Um, you guys should be able to recognize a stable and unstable bradycardia. Um, I want to also like go through what kind of basic workup that you guys should be doing, even in a little bit in the outpatient setting, as well as um, when you're in the wards or in the ICU. Um, and most importantly, when should we escalate care? When should we move this patient from floor level to like an intermediate or a, or to the ICU? Um, when do we really get cardiology on board? What we should be asking them? So this is what we're going to learn in this hour. So let's say. Um, you guys, a lot of y'all are, you know, probably started your floor blocks, ICU, um, or if you guys haven't, then you will be in the next uh, one to two months. So let's say you're cross-covering a patient or you're managing your own patient. Um, you get called by your nurse or, you know, you get a message saying that um, patient's heart rate is like less than, you know, let's say it's about like 52 um, and, you know, they're, they're a little concerned. So what exactly are you guys going to be doing? Is the first step. Um, so first of all, you're going to see, okay, so the heart rate is actually less than 60. So that's going to alert you. Okay, so this is some sort of bradycardia. So by definition, we would say, you know, bradycardia is a, a rate, heart rate of less than 60. Ideally, our heart rate should be 60 to 100. So these are four options. I know I can't see anybody's chat and I don't know if any of you want to speak up. And if you don't, it's okay. I don't know if you have access to the chat. Um, so in these four options, um, what exactly would you guys do first? And I'll, I'll wait for a few seconds if somebody wants to answer. So would you just kind of open the patient's chart, review medications, um, or would you like just order an EKG and then just kind of wait for the EKG to get done and then you'll go read it? Or are you just kind of going to go examine the patient, assess for vital signs, assess how the patient is doing, or do you just call cardiology from the get-go? Uh, number three, examine the patient. Yeah, exactly. So number three is right. 
um, you definitely want to examine the patient and assess for other vital signs. So why exactly are you going to assess this patient? Like, what are you going to assess the patient for? What are you, what exactly are you going to look for? What do you want? Like, what do you want the patient to be connected to? You know, all of that stuff. So bedside assessment of a patient, like it's not just for bradycardia. It can be anything that, you know, that somebody alerts you is abnormal. So most of the time it is nursing because they are like constantly, you know, with the patient at the bedside. And if something just kind of seems a little off, they're a little concerned. Um, it's usually the right thing to probably assess the patient at bedside. So first of all, you're going to go see the patient. You're going to go assess the patient for their symptoms, right? So history. So you're going to go ask the patient if they're having any kind of fatigue, lightheadedness, feeling that they're going to pass out. Are they short of breath? Are they having any chest pain? Um, and at the same time, I know this may sound funny, but you're definitely the first thing you want to do when you enter a room and you're called to evaluate like an unstable rhythm or, you know, a bradycardia would be check to make sure there's a pulse. Um, I know it sounds so ridiculous, but it definitely has happened. If you guys do remember, you just went through ACLS training. Bradycardia is one of the pre-code situations. So sometimes, you know, patients are just somnolent, sleeping, whatever. It takes, it literally takes like one second to put your, you know, fingers on a patient's carotid. Make sure there's a pulse. It's, it, I know it really does sound ridiculous, but it has happened to me before. Um, so then you're going to get the vitals connected. Hopefully the patient is already connected by the time you're there, or if there aren't, you want to, you know, get them connected to the monitor, or if they're, if you're really concerned, at least get the zone ready. Um, so you want to look in the, in the vitals. So you want to assess for the actual rate. You want to see, was this something that just kind of happened for a couple of seconds or is it sustaining? So you want to keep looking at the heart rate. Um, you want to look at the blood pressure because that's really going to determine, um, a lot of things. Uh, you want to look at their oxygen saturations um, and then, of course, respiratory rate. You also want to look at temperature because you guys remember, right? Hypothermia is one of the causes of bradycardia. Um, patients in the hospital can be sick, septic, can also be hypothermic, and bradycardia may just be like a byproduct of that. So those are the important vital signs that you want to look for. And then you want to do a physical exam. As I spoke about pulse, super important. Um, and then you just want to, you know, assess the patient for extremities. You know, you want to make sure are they perfusing well? Are they, you know, are they cold to touch? Um, how does their, you know, heart sounds, lung, lung sounds? It's just, it's just a basic. You're not going to do like a full-blown, you know, neuro assessment or anything, but you just want to ask like basic, you know, orientation questions. Make sure that the patient is maintaining well. Talk to the nurse, you know, find out what the baseline mental status is if, you know, if they're concerned that there's some change in their mental status. Um, at this time, it's it's fine. You know, you can get an EKG or, you know, it, it's fine to have also like put the EKG order in just before you run up to see the patient. That's fine so that, you know, things can get mobilized. But you definitely don't want to just wait for the EKG without really evaluating this patient. Um, and then you also want to look for telemetry. A lot of our patients are connected to the tele. So, you know, possibly just um, have somebody who's with you just go and review the telemetry strip, get a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes before. Um, to see what kind of rhythm it was. Um, and then, you know, at this, at that time when you're there, you'll, you'll have a couple of people with you. It's a good idea to, you know, get a computer to the bedside. I, I wouldn't recommend, you know, leaving a patient until a complete assessment and plan has been made to leave a bedside because a lot of these can be unstable rhythms. So you want to grab a computer to the bedside, 
assess what medications they are on. You very commonly see patients are on beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, digoxin. These are like common medications that can cause bradycardia. So you want to assess uh, these medications and see if you know uh, we can potentially hold a couple of the medications. And then you know the main question always is. Um, is this an unstable bradycardia? And then, you know, through this lecture, we learn about um, when when you should really be escalating care, when you need to move the patient from where they are to, you know, possibly to the ICU. So this is the initial management. Um, this is the initial evaluation of the patient. Um, I just want to reiterate that, you know, you guys are, you just entered intern year. Um, there's obviously always a lot of, um, you know, for the first time, there's a lot of responsibility on you and you always feel that you need to know the answer to everything. Um, to be honest, there's nothing you're not expected to single handedly, you know, do anything by yourself in the first couple of months, at least. So, even if you're reviewed an EKG and you think, okay, this just looks like sinus bradycardia, the patient was asleep and, but then even if there's like an iota of doubt, um, there is absolutely no issue to just review your review things with the, with the resident on with you or whoever is with you, because, um, as I said, there's no, there's no stupid question. There's only stupid answers. So, um, please feel free to always double check because ultimately it is somebody's life, um, that we are dealing with. So next steps, um, you know, we, we, we do a bedside assessment. Uh, so we're going to get review the EKG. We're going to review medications and then uh, other things. So after you've done medications, um, you want to check a couple of electrolytes. If at all, this is like sustaining. So, especially in patients whom, uh, like our ESRD patients, patients admitted with tumor lysis syndrome can frequently get hyperkalemic. Um, let's say, you know, patient has missed dialysis and you, you know, we haven't checked a BMP in a couple, like maybe since early this morning, or maybe the last lab was only last night. Um, because, you know, hyperkalemia is one of those, you know, dangerous electrolyte abnormalities, which can cause bradycardia, which is life threatening, um, because it, you know, it, they can go into, um, cardiac arrest and also it's, it's something that's very easily treatable. Um, so, you know, if, if you notice that, you know, we haven't checked that, you can probably um, get some repeat labs, uh, especially electrolytes. Um, and then also, you know, uh, check, you know, CBCs if, if there is, if this patient is on, you know, they're concerned for bleeding, you think that, um, you know, blood loss could be causing some of these symptoms, definitely um, you can use your judgment to do that. Um, and then we spoke about um, reviewing the telemetry. So coming to the causes, so then as you're assessing this patient, you want to start thinking about possible causes, right? Like what, what exactly is happening? What's causing this? So in the outpatient setting, so a lot of you guys have, I'm not sure if you'll have started clinic or you're going to be starting clinic this week. Um, you're going to possibly encounter bradycardia in your outpatient setting. In outpatient setting, we usually see a couple of things. Um, and obviously this list is not exhaustive. It was just three things that I could you know, common things that we, we see. So a lot of your patients may be like um, well-trained, like, not like athletes, but at least, you know, do some sort, of, so, uh, some sort of endurance exercises, may just have a low resting heart rate. Um, you want to rule out hypothyroidism in anyone with bradycardia. It's a simple blood test, treatable. Um, so you want to get a TSH. Many times obstructive sleep apnea can cause um, bradycardia. Um, you can use the stop bank score, um, which you'll learn about if you haven't already. 
Um, you can use that to, you know, kind of screen your patients to see who's probably high risk for OSA and um, see if they need further referral and treatment for the same. Um, coming to the inpatient setting, we do get called for bradycardia a lot. Most of the time it's at night. Um, you will see because patients are asleep and sleep is one of the physiological things that can cause bradycardia. Um, and many times, you know, you'll see the nurses themselves, you know, they say, oh, the patient's heart rate up to the 50s, but he's awake now and he's, it's come back up. Um, so these most of the time are reassuring. And as long as, you know, there's, there's no vital sign of abnormalities, then most of the times you can, there's nothing to do in these situations. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll start to see, um, with time that there are a lot of um, rapid responses, code blues that are called for a sudden episode of unresponsiveness. And this can, the, the typical story that you'll hear is the patient was, you know, taken from his bed onto the toilet seat and he kind of was having a bowel moment. He or she strains and then that causes a hyper, you know, a vagal reflex. Um, and suddenly the patient becomes unresponsive for like a couple of seconds and, and they call code blues on this many times. And by the time you've gone to see the patient, they're probably back and maybe just have some lightheadedness and um, there's a whole lot of commotion. And um, a lot of these also get called as stroke alerts, um, many times subjecting the patient to unnecessary contrast testing. So my point is it's very important to get the, the the story, right? So you want to ask whoever was there with the patient, what exactly happened? Um, and then you have to think about other things that can happen to really sick patients, right? So hypoxia can cause bradycardia, hypothermia that we spoke about, uh, patients with increased intracranial pressure. So you guys are going to be cross-covering a lot of patients in the ICU who are like, uh, come with a huge stroke, have... Um, uh, increasing intracranial pressure, uh, you know, the Cushing's, uh, the Cushing's reflux. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, hyperkalemia, something that we're going to encounter very frequently because of our dialysis patients and um, that can cause bradycardia. And then, of course, drugs. So drugs, you'll have to be aware of all of the classes of antiarrhythmics because all of them, um, a lot of drugs in all the classes can cause um, bradycardia. The most common things that you guys should probably look out for are our usual CCBs, beta blockers, digoxin, clonidine, um, a lot of our antipsychotic meds, so lithium phenothiazines and um, even amitriptyline. Uh, obviously, this list is also you know not exhaustive. There's there's a huge list of medications, but just the most common things that should really catch your eye. And then, of course, other diseases you want to think about are intrinsic diseases in your heart, right? So things that are, these are all conditions which um, cause like some sort of anatomic abnormalities in your conduction system. So um, anything that can cause like a fibrosis or a sclerosis um, can cause uh, can cause conduction abnormalities. So uh, Lyme disease, especially in this uh, area, very common. Um, you will definitely see uh, one case at least in your span of three years of, you know, somebody who's being worked up for possible Lyme carditis. You'll see this most commonly in the CCU. Um, another big thing, and anyone with bradycardia, you definitely want to uh, rule out ACS, right? Because, you know, um, right coronary arteries, they do supply the SA node, AV node, uh, sometimes left circumflex, but any kind of 
ischemia to the heart and to these areas can cause um, bradycardia. So you want to get an EKG to also rule out um, an acute coronary syndrome. Apart from that, all of these, the carditis, so pericarditis, myocarditis, endocarditis. In fact, you will see a lot of you are going to be taking care of endocarditis patients on your teams. Um, you will see cardiology or cardiothoracic surgery recommendations saying serial EKGs. And if you ever wonder why that is, because um, as you, as sometimes when the vegetations kind of move into the, or, or kind of extend into your conduction system, you do see different kind of um, AV blocks. And that is actually one of the indications for surgery and endocarditis. And of course, there are other reasons as well. Um, so that's the reason why we do monitor that uh, in patients with endocarditis. Um, and then a lot other kind of cardiomyopathies can also cause it. You have to think about, again, different kind of infiltrative diseases, especially amyloidosis. A lot of these can also cause um, bradycardias and different kinds of heart blocks. So... I guess the main question always that's in our mind is, you know, when do we escalate care? When do we call cardiology? So definitely anyone with um, signs of hemodynamic instability. So you've seen like a sinus pause or a sinus arrest on the on a tele on a tele strip, and we'll talk more about it. Um, and and there is signs of hemodynamic instability, or the patient has syncopized, um, and you see, you know, probably hypotension, signs of shock. So that is definite indication to obviously up um, up triage the patient and then get get cardiology expertise. Uh, any kind of high degree AV blocks, um, so that can include anything um, above your two is to one blocks, uh, three is to one, four is to one. Your Mobitz type two blocks are also high degree blocks, um, as well as and your third degree blocks. So these are the couple of you know things that we would commonly see in medicine, um, which should really alert you to um, at least like reach out to the covering cardiologist or the cardiology fellow um, to get involved. So coming to, you know, the electrical conduction of the heart, I know you guys already know this. I'm not going to, you know, re reiterate too much. We all know the SA node um, is the principal pacemaker of the heart, and then impulses kind of um, come from the, uh, the SA node into the AV node. And then this is your bundle of his, and then we get the bundle branches, and then it finally goes into the his and j system. So usually when we think about bradycardia and blocks, um, the places where we think the problem is, is at the SA node and then at the um, AV node and then obviously below as well, um, which we see the higher degree AV blocks. So coming to disorders of the sinus node, um, there are just a couple of things that we need to know. And just I'm just going to touch upon a couple of things that we do see commonly in practice. So disorders of the SA node or sick sinus syndrome, you'll see a lot of patients with um, with this diagnosis as well. It's basically something that's happened to the primary SA node or to the areas around it that, um, you know, probably there's like some sort of a, you know, sclerosis or fibrosis there. And it's, in, in, it's just not able to generate the rate that it's supposed to, to meet the physiological demands of the individual. Um, sinus node disease can cause a lot of um, abnormalities on the ECG. Um, so most commonly we see sinus bradycardia. Um, you can see sinus pauses, which is basically an absence of a P wave. Uh, up to two to three seconds sometimes is normal. You can see it in, in people, but um, many times if it goes above um, 
three seconds, we do see um, patients actually have a lot of symptoms uh, and can, it can be associated with hemodynamic instability. So that is something that we also look out for. Uh, sinus arrhythmia. So sinus arrhythmia, you guys know, you know, that's a, we see physiological change in heart rate with respiration. Uh, sometimes in elderly patients, you can have this even, even when it's not um, synchronized with respiration. And then we see SA nodal exit blocks, um, chronotropic incompetence, um, which is basically, uh, you, you'll see it's an inability of your heart to increase your heart rate to meet your demands during exercise. So the formula that we use is, you know, 220 minus your age. Um, and 80% of that number is what your heart rate should be when you're exercising. Um, and then many times you'll see this syndrome called tachybrady syndrome. So a lot of the supraventricular tachycardias can be uh, seen along with bradycardia and it's called a tachybrady syndrome. Um, not very uncommon. So anyone can, we'll just do quick review of a couple of EKGs. Um, would anyone be able to tell me what kind of rhythm this is? If you're able to maybe type it out or just want to. Yes, it's normal sinus. So the reason I put this in is because we obviously need to know um, a normal, like how a normal sinus looks. Um, so you guys, I know you've probably reviewed EKGs in your previous summer survivals. Um, and, and so it's basically a P wave. That is, we see a P wave before every QRS. Um, you see upright P waves in two, three AVL and a negative one in AVR. Um, and the rate, so a rate is usually we want a normal heart rate to be 60 to 100. And over here, um, I like counting it with big boxes. So it's 300 divided by four and it's 75. So the heart rate is normal. So this is a normal sinus rhythm. So what about this one? Anyone able to figure out what rhythm this is? Definitely looks a little bit slower than the previous EKG. Yeah, exactly. I'm seeing sinus bradycardia. So um, definitely you see the RR interval has kind of prolonged. Um, but then at the same time, you see P waves and then you want to look at the PR interval. They look pretty much, you know, they look pretty much um, the same. Yeah, obviously, you know, this is an archaic way, but um, when, when you're really reading an EKG, uh, it, it's good to have calipers or at least just mark it out with a pen and make sure that they're all kind of, um, there's no subtle abnormalities with the, um, with the, uh, with the timings. So this is sinus bradycardia, um, heart rate is 43, so pretty slow. Um, so let's talk about sinus bradycardia a little bit because this is something, you know, it's, it's most commonly seen. We should know uh, what to do when we see it. So uh, it's a heart rate of less than 60. Um, as I told you, sinus bradycardia can be seen. It's, it's in some adults, it's just normal. Um, we see it at sleep or during resting states. Uh, sometimes some elderly patients can also have sinus bradycardia. So obviously you want to confirm that it's sinus bradycardia and we spoke about how we can um, determine that this is of sinus origin. Um, and then you want to, you know, obviously 
make sure that you have ruled out any other kind of an AV block uh, by reviewing the tele strip and the EKG. And you also want to make sure that this is a stable rhythm and by basically assessing the patient. So this is the um, this is the sinus pause that I was talking about. Um, so you basically see that it's basically an absence of P waves. Um, and, and many times you do see this when somebody who's gone into rapid AFib, uh, when they convert back to sinus rhythm, uh, very often we see the sinus pause. And um, usually it, it, there's no, it can be from two, two seconds, three seconds. It, anything longer than that is usually very concerning for us because um, patients can actually syncopize or um, uh, you know, have symptoms, uh, and then many times you'll see a lot of rapid responses and code blues being called for this very same uh, reason. So it's important to get this tele strip um, and also to figure out how often this is happening because if this is happening very, very frequently, that the patient is kind of going in and out of AFib and you're seeing these long conversion pauses. Um, you know, you're, you're gonna, it, it's a very scary situation because it's literally like. You're, you're seeing this period of asystole almost for a couple of seconds. Um, so that could be one of the indications to call cardiology to not really ask for a pacemaker, but to really figure out if this patient should have rhythm control measures, because that's pretty much what is driving this, um, this sinus pause. Um, so this was like a cute little representation. It was a summary of um, basically everything that we have spoken about. Maybe not so much the, um, you know, the, the diagnosis and treatment part, because I don't want to go too much into what happens after somebody is referred to cardiology and what kind of like workup they get and what pacemakers, because that's not the scope of this lecture. Um, so coming to disorders of the AV node, so we spoke about things that, that happen in the sinus node. Um, and before we go into disorders of the AV node, uh, does anyone want to kind of ask anything or share any experiences? All right, I'm not seeing anything on the chat. so. We'll, uh, we'll go into um, disorders of the AV, um, AV system. So basically, um, obviously, so you guys know um, things that happen in the AV node and below the AV node um, can be classified as atrioventricular blocks. Um, you, I'm sure all of you all know that there are, you know, three, three kinds of um, AV blocks. It's usually first degree, second degree, and then the third degree or the complete heart block. So let's just quickly review uh, all of them. Um, so this, you know, I, I mean, I know, I'm sure a lot of you all can recognize it, but just um, is anyone able to say what kind of block this is? First degree block? Yeah, first degree AV block. And the reason that you have said first degree AV block is um, you probably observed that the PR interval looks pretty prolonged and it's also, you know, kind of mentioned here. So a first degree AV block is um, a PR interval. So that's from the beginning of your P wave to the beginning of your R wave. Um, that interval, if it's more than 200 milliseconds, which is basically one big box or five small boxes, um, if it's if it's more than that, then it's a first degree AV block. 
and it has to be the same before every um, in every interval. So basically, when you march out um, the PR interval of every um, of every beat, it has to be the same. So this is a first degree AV block. If it's more than three hundred milliseconds, we call it a marked first degree AV block. Um, usually, these are pretty benign. Um, they don't usually cause any kind of hemodynamic instability. There's usually no treatment that's required for this. Um, and this is also something that you'll commonly see outpatient as well as inpatient. So let's kind of look at, look at this EKG. Let's look at the, the second lead here. It's a long strip. So you see, you're pretty much seeing P waves, P waves, P waves, P waves, P waves. And then you kind of see like this, um, an absence of a QRS. And then, so when you kind of see this, you start to wonder, okay, what's kind of going on? Um, and then you kind of start looking at the PR interval. And over here, um, you start to notice, and, and obviously, as I said, you definitely need to march this out um, uh, with, with your paper or with calipers. So you start to notice, and, and I think it's pretty evident here, you start kind of noticing a prolongation of your PR interval. Um, definitely this, this PR interval here looks way, way more prolonged than any of the PR intervals previously. And then you suddenly notice that there's this tiny little P wave and a dropped, um, QRS complex. So I'm sure all of you all know that this is called a second degree AV block. It's a type one. So this is Wenke bug. So this is basically gradual prolongation of your PR with one skipped beat. And then, then it kind of resumes and causes the same set of um uh, causes the same pattern again usually this um is also not not usually something that um we're too concerned about usually um uh, this is not something that uh progresses to like a high degree or a third degree hard block so usually when we see this um we're not we're not too concerned but you guys know, um, usually when you see something, which is when you see a second degree AV block type two, um, and above, that's when we start to get concerned, right? So when you start to see these randomly dropped P waves with an, with no QR, sorry, um, randomly dropped QRS complexes, um, with the P wave and you've seen previously, like all the PR intervals look pretty okay. Um, you're seeing this PQRS, 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 and suddenly there's a drop QRS. Um, this kind of starts to concern you now. So this basically now you're starting to worry that there's something happening below the AV node, um, uh, which is something like in your bundle of his and in your bundle branches. Um, and that is something that can progress into a, into a, a complete hard block. So these, these kind of AV blocks are the ones where you definitely would get a cardiology input um, and then also escalate care probably to, you know, a higher level of care to keep a closer eye on the patient. So this is your MOBITS type 2, um, where there is no prolongation of your PR interval and you just see a dropped QRS complex. And then, of course, um, let's talk about the um, fixed ratio AV block. So you will see um, some of these two is to one, three is to one, four is to one. At least you will you will start to see them um, during the course of these three years. Um, during these fixed ratio AV blocks, it's basically the ratio of your P to QRS. So the, the first number will be the number of P waves, and the second number is the number of conducted Q waves. 
So in your when you see a fixed ratio AV block, you it's very difficult to see if it's mobits one or two because you're not really seeing the the PR the PR intervals because they're they're kind of just being blocked. So, um, but sometimes they can be interspersed between um, your mobits one and two. So sometimes it helps to maybe get like a longer tally strip and see if there there's a pattern you can recognize before. Um, sometimes if you see your QRS has widened. Um, that can be more suggestive of a Mobitz 2 conduction block because then that, that has moved down further into your bundle branches and that causes the interventricular conduction delay. Um, so if you, if you look at this EKG, so this is, this is a high grade AV block. This is, um, you can categorize as like a three is to one block because you see your you see your P wave and you see one QRS and then after that you see one P wave one P wave and if you kind of take this as a cluster you basically had three P waves but in this there's only one QRS which got conducted so as you guys can see here the ventricular rate here is pretty slow um, and these are obviously concerning because obviously this amount this kind of slow ventricular rate is rate is not going to keep up with your physiological demands um, and the patient will definitely get symptomatic from this and this can progress to a higher block. So this is definitely one of the times where you will probably call cardiology and then move the patient to, um, to the ICU. And then your last kind of AV block is your third degree AV block. So as you guys know, the third degree AV block just basically means that the atria and ventricles are just kind of doing their own things. So there is no relation between your P and QRS, but you do see that um, as you guys will, if you can march it out, you'll see that your PP, PP intervals are pretty constant and your RR intervals are pretty constant as well. Um, but there's no real relation between your P wave and a QRS. So this basically means that there is a complete dissociation uh, between your atria and ventricles. And obviously this is an extremely, extremely concerning condition. Um, another indication for escalation of care. So we spoke a lot about um, bradycardia AV blocks. Um, I hope by now you guys know basic assessment of the patient. Uh, you guys know how to recognize these rhythms. Um, and obviously, it's so much easier when you kind of look at EKGs on a on a on the internet or on somebody's presentation because everything is it's very certain. But most of the time, when you guys are actually assessing a real patient, it's not always so simple. So uh, because you know the EKGs are they're not straightforward. There can be a lot of like abnormalities which you're not sure what they are. You don't know you don't know how to read um, in so much detail. So. In, in, in any situation where you're, you're not sure, it's still okay to always kind of up triage or get expert consultation rather than to not. So um, just keep that in mind and just always make sure that you're double checking, triple checking. Um, so management of unstable bradycardia. So what exactly is unstable bradycardia? So as we spoke, um, when you assess a patient and you see that there's any kind of abnormalities with their mentation, having difficulty breathing, having chest pain, 
Um, they, uh, you know, have signs of shock in their extremities, acute heart failure, they're hypotensive. So all of these um, signs and symptoms are things that can, are things that should alert you that, okay, this is an unstable bradycardia. So most of the times um, you'll see like the heart rates are usually less than 50 and actually much lower as well um, to, to cause these symptoms. Um, so, so just remember whenever you go to any unstable situation, so this doesn't have to be just bradycardia. It can be like even in a patient who's, you know, decompensating with respiratory failure, your first three things always remain the same in any unstable situation. So that's always airway breathing circulation. So those things don't change no matter what you're dealing with. So whenever you're, you're approaching this, these kind of situations, always make sure that the patient has a patent airway is awake enough to maintain their airway because um, if they're not, then you know you need to secure that first. And many times that has to be with endotracheal intubation. And if and if it comes to that, then that's okay. But that that's you know one of the priorities. Um, obviously, you know oxygen of a patient is hypoxic. Uh, you want to make sure that they're connected to the leads and then also connected to the zone. Um, and at the same time, when you're doing all this, you're obviously going to be telling, you'll, you'll hear a lot of your senior residents in the first couple of months to say, put the pads on. So these pads are basically either the pace of pads, um, if we're going to start to pace the patient, or, you know, pads for defibrillation, which means because bradycardia is an unstable rhythm, it can, it's a pre-code situation. Anytime this patient can go into cardiac arrest, we want to be ready to, you know, if this patient needs a shock, we want to be ready to shock the patient. Um, and then you obviously want to have IV access because we're going to be, you know, we're going to start pushing a lot of meds and everything. So you want to make sure that they have good IV access. So in many times, if you encounter this situation and things are, you know, it's, and it's not a rapid response and things are not mobilizing, many times it's okay to call a rapid response just so that you have a lot of, people being mobilized to the bedside. So you get IV therapy, you get respiratory therapy, you get, you know, a couple of more hands um, to help you out. So you basically, um, you basically try to stabilize the patient and then you, 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 you start to see, okay, the next step that their heart rates are low. That's the whole reason why we started this. Um, so in this situation, you can push atropine. So that's your first drug of choice. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but when I, when we did ACLS, when we joined the um, the the dose was zero point five milligrams every three to five minutes, up to six doses for a maximum of three milligrams. So uh, this this um, ACLS guideline changed last year, so it's actually now one milligrams of uh, atropine, and you can push that the same rate at three to five minutes. Um, and for a maximum of three milligrams. So usually uh, atropine is your first choice. Um, so sinus, sinus bradycardia and maybe even your first degree V blocks, many times they do respond to um, uh, atropine. But as you start seeing a higher degree AV block, so anything that you're concerned about, like which is your type two, Mobitz type two and, and higher grade AV blocks, Usually we don't even do atropine because sometimes it can also worsen the block. Um, so if, if you do actually see signs of hemodynamic instability, we usually actually pace the patient. Um, and obviously by this time, if you're considering pacing a patient, it's 
almost understood that you've reached out to the cardiologist on on call. Um, I myself have never faced a patient as of yet. So it's it's obviously not something that's just um, something that's just done like very routinely. Uh, so it's always helpful to have somebody there with you. So atropine is your first drug of choice. You let's say you try three doses and still not picking up. You can try dopamine and epinephrine um, as the next line agents. Uh, these are usually started off as a drip. Um, and and all of obviously when you're doing all this, you're you're at the same time you're obviously trying to find out what caused this. So obviously you've done your EKG, you want to rule out like if this is an ACS, because obviously that's a direct trip to the cat lab. Um, you want to rule out like other things like, you know, if you're getting hypoxic, you want to try and figure out like if it was sudden onset hypoxia, this patient has bad emphysema, you want to be ordering a stat chest x-ray, did he develop for spontaneous pneumothorax? Is that what's driving it? You want to order stat labs. We spoke about our dialysis patients who can become hyperkalemic. Um, and so you want to be ordering some stat labs. Uh, so all of this is kind of going on, you know, almost at the same time. So that's why you do need multiple, you know, hands to help. Um, and then when 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 you've done all of this and still, you know, the patient is still unstable, that's when um, we usually like start to think about pacing the patient. So when, when you say transcutaneously pacing, you basically applied the pads and you're You've changed the um, zone settings to the pacemaker settings, and you're basically externally pacing the patient. It's obviously very uncomfortable. It's almost like delivering shock. Um, so you, the, the patient needs to be sedated, and you know all of that. So it's not something that's super easy. So at this time, you want somebody who's obviously an expert to be helping you. Um, by this time, you should have also coordinated care with your ICU uh, because these patients usually. You know, they will need to be monitored very closely. The cardiologists usually also put like a transvenous pacing after that. Um, and then they have to figure out if this patient ultimately needs a permanent pacemaker. Um, so now, so this is basically how you manage an unstable bradycardia. Um, just remember when all of this is happening, this patient is unstable, right? That's what's called unstable bradycardia. And this this is a pre-code situation. So it's not something that you're just going to push atropine and kind of like fly out. It's something that you're going to be at the bedside, possibly with hands on the pulse, uh, because at any time this patient could actually lose pulse. So you obviously want him connected to the zone. You want to be watching the telly. You want to be watching his pulse at any time. So let's say um, at this time, you know, you're you're doing all of this. You're trying to figure out like, okay, this patient's going to move, blah, blah, blah. And then you notice that the patient lost a pulse. So what exactly are you guys going to do then? Yeah. I didn't hear that, sorry. Did, did you say what we're going to do if he loses a pulse? CPR? Yes. Yep, exactly. So then that changes that that you're no longer following this algorithm. That's absolutely right. It becomes the adult cardiac arrest algorithm. So you guys have already been through this um, before you guys started internship. So that it's no longer you're no longer doing a bradycardia algorithm. It moves into adult cardiac arrest. So you start CPR. Um, and then you basically go down the same pathway that you learned. So, you know, you do your CPR, you get epinephrine ready, you're 
you know, watching the rhythm after two minutes, shock versus non-shock, and then you basically go down that pathway. So always remember, guys, any unstable cardiac rhythm is very, um, it's very concerning. You always want to be at the bedside until you've you've actually like physically handed off this patient um, to wherever they're supposed to go, which is, you know, to a higher level of care. Um, just, just make sure that you don't leave the bedside because this is, uh, this is a pretty critical. So I think that's all I have for you guys. These were my references. Um, did any of you want to kind of discuss anything uh, or have any questions? you guys have any non-bradycardia related questions? All right. So I assume that's a no. So um, thank you so much for listening. Hopefully this, you guys were engaged and learned about the practical management of a bradycardia as an intern. And um, good luck to all of you all. I'm sure you're going to be great. Uh, just remember to always reach out for help uh, when you're not sure. Good luck, and I look forward to working with you guys this year.